Okay, so as we're all talking about how social media might be the downfall of our civilization, let's talk about the first time we should have clued in that social media meant chaos and riots. The year was 2008, and an Australian teenager named Corey Worthington put up a MySpace post. It read, and picture this with plenty of misspellings, Parents away, tell your mates, you don't want to miss it, it's gonna be huge. It was huge. So many people showed up and refused to leave that not only did the cops arrive, they had to bring helicopters and a dog squad. What turned this party into a global story was Corey himself, this bleach-haired, shirtless punk who went on Australian TV, and not only did he refuse to apologize to his parents, he refused to even take off his yellow sunglasses. Corey made people so mad that the internet created a game. Slap Corey, you could whack him across the face with a virtual hand, and people played this over a million times. Corey went into hiding, but his story inspired the party film Project X. But where is he now? Corey still lives in Melbourne, Australia, and he still wears yellow sunglasses. But today, he is now a happy husband who claims he has settled down. And he recently launched a party planning business. Hi, I'm Amy Nicholson, chief film critic for MTV News, and welcome to Skillset, the podcast where every guest is an expert, and every week they teach you and me a new way to look at the movies. Today is dedicated to the rebels, the troublemakers, the shit stirrers whose aggro energy we're going to need for the next four years. This is not a time for obedience. So let's start with the first ever revolutionary teen, James Dean, who exploded onto pop culture with 1955's Rebel Without a Cause, released one month after he died in a car accident. James Dean never got to see himself become a star. But here in Hollywood, you see him every day in store windows. So we are going to talk to a James Dean expert who lives in James Dean's hometown and knows him better than anyone. Then we are going to hang out with one of today's major teenagers, actress Haley Steinfeld, the star of the new film Edge of Seventeen, in which she plays a high school junior who breaks every rule. And finally... Let's take off our pants and talk about Risky Business, the movie about a high school senior who opens a brothel in his parents' home. Risky Business turned its star, Tom Cruise, into a legend. But we're not going to talk about Cruise, and we are not going to talk about his underwear, perverts, sorry, no. We are going to be talking about Tom Cruise's Ray-Ban sunglasses and the power of one cool kid to rescue a failing 50-year-old company. So, let's flip up our shirt collars and set a fire on this episode of Skillset. Most of us have never known a world without James Dean. You might have even known his face before you knew his name. That handsome, slender, slick-haired blonde boy in his white t-shirt and rolled-up jeans. James Dean has become a familiar symbol of America, of Americana. He is as omnipresent as apple pie. But in 1955, James Dean wasn't soothing. He was scary. Because you see, before him, movie kids were cheerful. We didn't make that many movies about teenagers, and when we did, they were usually singing and putting together a musical for charity. If you haven't seen Rebel Without a Cause, watch it this week. 
You can rent it online for three bucks and it will blow your mind. Then I want you to picture being in a movie theater 60 years ago and seeing this totally new image of youth. A kid who in his first scene is drunk and getting picked up by his parents at jail. He's angry. And over the course of the movie, he keeps getting angrier at everybody. James Dean made a huge impression on the culture. He shaped the way that we would see teenagers for the next six decades and counting. And he made a super huge impression on our first guest, David Lohr, the founder of the James Dean Gallery in James Dean's hometown of Fairmount, Indiana, where David also hosts the annual James Dean Lookalike Contest. But there is more to this actor than that famous image. So let's call up David and learn more about him. The gallery that you run in Fremont, Indiana, his hometown, is a lot of your personal collection. What are some of the favorite things that you own? We've got uh, some of his schoolwork from Fairmount High School here, elementary schoolwork, and some signed photos, uh, a pair of uh, penny loafers that he wore, and uh, some uh, of his high school yearbooks, and there's a Santa Monica uh, College, community college yearbook that he inscribed. And, and uh, oh, there's the fence from Rebel Without a Cause, actually, the from the Rebel Alley where he meets Natalie Wood and, and Sal Mineo. That famous fence he's leaning on in all of those pictures? That was a matter of being in the right place at the right time. Mid-90s, I was in Los Angeles scouting James Dean locations, uh, and the Rebel Alley was one of the locations. It's in Culver City. And when I got to that spot, the wooden fence was all in pieces on the ground. They were putting up a, a cinder block wall. So I, I knocked on the door. It wasn't a it wasn't a back studio, it was an actual, you know, street scene. And the lady wouldn't answer the door. She said, What do you want? I said, uh, are you throwing that wood away? She said, Yeah, take it if you want. I don't think she knew what it was. That just absolutely blew my mind. Yeah. I mean, it was just laying there waiting for the trash man. <laughs> so one of the things you do is you host an annual James Dean lookalike contest. And I assume the first level of what people do when they're trying to be a James Dean lookalike is the clothes. So what are people wearing? Eight out of ten are doing the rebel out of cause, red jacket look, blue jeans, red jacket, and a T-shirt and boots. What makes them gravitate towards that? Well, it's the iconic look. It's the look that uh, he's most well-known for. Interesting story about Rebel Without a Cause. Well, East of Eden was released to the public and a huge overnight sensation. I mean, it just exploded like a shooting star. And Warner Brothers was going to put him right into Giant with Liz Taylor and Rock Hudson. And Elizabeth Taylor got pregnant. So they said, what are we going to do with this kid for nine months? They said... They had Rebel Without a Cause script kicking around the studio for a few years, and they said, let's just do this. Let's just throw them into this. In the meantime, it's kind of just like filler <laughs> to spend some, waste some time, you know? And uh, so if Liz Taylor hadn't got pregnant, there may not have even been Rebel Without a Cause or the red jacket or that whole image, his whole look. So, David, what makes James Dean in Rebel Without a Cause the signature teenager? James Dean's role in Rebel Without a Cause was kind of groundbreaking. It was one of the very first movies that showed teenage angst and problems with teenagers. Before that, it was all like Mickey Rooney, teenage type thing, all goody-goody. And 
So, you know, he was like the first one that stood up to his parents and yelled at him and <laughs> attacked his father at that one point in Rebel. And uh, so he, he gave teenagers a real identity, something they could identify with. What are the age ranges of the people doing the lookalike contest? Well, they have a uh, junior Jimmy, like a little Jimmy contest, and it's it's little kids, and, the, and it's, that's cute, you know, a bunch of little Jimmys up there. But the adult contest is all ages, teenagers up to guys that would be, you know, in their 60s. A lot of them don't look like James Dean at all, but somewhere along the way, someone has told them they did. <laughs> and so they get up there and give it a try, and it's all for fun. There's not a big money prize or anything, and, you know, they get a trophy or two, but... Just get up there and start around the stage, and it's all in the attitude, really. A lot of it's attitude as much as the looks. What's the hardest thing for people to capture? You know, that, that quality that made James Dean unique. It's really hard to describe. I don't know. He just had a sense about him that was just, I mean, you couldn't take your eyes off him. There's just something. But he was always doing something with his hands or scratching his back or looking to the side and uh, basically stealing the scene from the other actors by doing some quirky gesture. <laughs> if James Dean were a young actor alive today, what do you think he would make of Hollywood right now? Oh, boy. He uh, he wasn't very fond of the Hollywood machine at all at that time, and he'd probably be really disgusted with it now. But um, he, just, he was determined to do things his way. And, I mean, he didn't even go to the premiere of East of Eden, his first film. You know, he was passionate about his about his acting. I mean, that's that was all he wanted to do. You know, if you could spend a day with him, what would you want to do? I don't think I've ever been asked that. Probably something quiet, walking in the woods or something, or sitting on the beach, or just kind of uh, getting to know him, talk to him, see what, you know, what's on his mind, but. I probably want to thank him for, you know, uh, giving me a life. It, it's pretty much changed my life. I've dedicated my life to paying tribute to him, you know, with the James Dean Gallery. And uh, just last year, um, I was able to dedicate a, a beautiful monument in Marion, Indiana, where he was born, that I designed and, and uh, raised money and had built. So it really just has been my life, you know, and, I'm here every day, <laughs> seven days a week. It's a, We're close Thanksgiving, Christmas, and New Year's. Otherwise, pretty much I'm here every day. Does that ever feel like pressure to make sure that you're there helping people remember the James Dean who really was? Well, I don't really feel pressured, no. It's, it's, it's pretty easy. I mean, it, it just comes naturally to me. It's just so interesting just being here, people come in from all over the world. We're, you know, it's a little Midwest town. It's not easy to get to. And uh, people come from Russia, Australia, Croatia, all over Europe, and countries, Malaysia, places you wouldn't think they'd even know about them, Iraq and Iran, Pakistan. You know, this little town in the middle of nowhere, basically. And celebrities, Bob Dylan, showed up late one night. It's just uh, it's amazing, the the impact that he has on people. Really thinking about that, now I'm thinking, I I think of the James Dean teenager as such an American teenager. And now I'm thinking about how universal, I guess, teenagehood is, if it can connect to people as far as away as Iraq and Iran. That always amazes the local people that just think of them as, you know, they're Jimmy. <laughs> but they come in and they see 
posters from Turkey and Spain and uh, Japan and all these different languages. And, and they realized, wow, our little hometown Jimmy is an international icon. Oh, that's lovely. Well, David, thank you again so much. This has been really interesting. Thank you, Amy. I've enjoyed it. That was David Lohr, founder of the James Dean Gallery in James Dean's hometown of Fairmount, Indiana. Take a road trip. Go check it out. Go visit. But drive carefully. Haley Steinfeld is not a normal teenager. When she was 13, she starred in the Coen Brothers' True Grit and scored an Academy Award nomination for Best Supporting Actress. Since then, you can find Haley in Ender's Game and Pitch Perfect 2 and a musical I really love called Begin Again. But you will not find her in a normal high school. Haley was homeschooled. However, in the new movie Edge of 17, Haley proves she earned that Oscar nom by playing one of the most believable teenage girls I have ever, ever, ever seen. Haley's character Nadine is a bit of a mess. Like, it's not just her cartoon sweatshirts and crazy puffy jackets, the kind of outfits you expect a social misfit like her to wear. She's loud and she's confused and she is furious when her best friend, her only friend, begins dating her brother, which makes Nadine figure out who she is on her own. The answer isn't totally flattering. I loved Edge of 17, and I think it has all the ingredients to be a new high school classic. So let's grab Haley and talk all things high school and homeschool. So Haley, what are some of the high school movies that you first remember seeing that painted your idea of what high school might be like? Oh my goodness. I remember I remember seeing The Breakfast Club. I remember watching that for the first time. I don't know that I it registered with me as well as it did when I had seen it a couple years later. Um, mean Girls might be one that I was like, oh my God, this is this is what high school must be like. That maybe that might have been the one. Mean Girls sounds like a really scary idea of what high school right? might be like. Yeah, I know. That's why I was like, oh, that might have been the one. Um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe it was The Breakfast Club because I I, rem- I do remember watching that feeling like, wow, like it's cool to not be cool. And then sort of re-watching it, um, still not having not been in high school yet, and feeling like, wow, like this, this I guess, is, is what it must be like. So then what is it like starring in a high school movie where you play a character named Nadine who has a very rough time of it? Like, first tell us about Nadine. So Nadine is one of the most complex characters I think I've ever played. She, she's the epitome of a young girl going through high school. This, this movie as a whole is what being a teenager really feels like today. Uh, she goes from waking up every morning, trying to figure out sort of who am I going to have lunch with today? How am I going to get to school? Am I going to have to take public transportation or pull up in my mom's car? That's really not cool at all. Just all these questions, all these sort of Things she's constantly thinking about, uh, just every every second of every minute, uh, there's something new um, that she's just trying to figure out. How do you get in the mindset of playing a normal high school teenager when you've been acting since before high school started, when you haven't gotten to have that normal, quote-unquote, high school life? Yeah, well, I... Yeah, like you said, I, I, I didn't have a traditional high school experience. I started homeschooling uh, the middle of sixth grade. So I did... 
obviously experienced sort of what it was like to be in a classroom. I had a locker. I had responsibilities. I had textbooks. I had homerooms. I had other teachers, and I had all the, you know... I was just starting to get the gist of it right before right before I left. And I have an older brother who's three years older than me. I watched him go through high school. My friends I still... I mean, friends I was in school with, kept in touch with, watched them go through high school. And in ways, I think it sort of worked to my advantage not having had the experience myself when playing this character, sort of being thrown into the high school uh, and really feeling that sense of, of isolation where you're in the middle of a, a high school hallway and the bell rings and you don't know where to look or where to go or what to do or how to play it off. Um, I had no idea how to do any of those things. But at the same time, more than this movie really being sort of a labeled as a high school movie, it's it's a movie about what being a teenager really feels like. And, and that above all, you know, I in no way felt removed from her just because I didn't have that traditional high school experience. Absolutely. So when you're making this movie, do you feel like a responsibility as a teenager to kind of fact check almost like the script and the direction to say this is what being a teenager really feels like today? Well, I will tell you that having read the script feeling like there was nothing I needed to do about any of it, that's that's how I knew it was right. Um, I think my only sort of fear and the biggest challenge was really just doing the story justice and doing this, this, um, this character justice, making it so that my generation can see this movie and feel like this is theirs. This is their story and they're not alone and this is for them. Uh, and they can identify with this character. That was really what was... I guess, I guess I could say that was probably the biggest challenge. So were there any high school moments that you saw in films that you kind of wish you could have had, like a prom? Yeah, I mean, it's crazy looking at, at certain movies feeling like, oh my God, like that's, that's prom. That's the one and only, the homecoming or the, I don't know, you everybody gets on the bus to go there and you all get dressed up, you get ready together, you come down the stairs, you have the moment where the guy's at the door, they see you for the first time, you put on the little flowery thingy, uh, all that. Like, yeah, I guess in ways it's like I see that and I'm like, I'll never have that. I'll never know what that's like. But at the same time, in ways, I feel like in movies that we've seen, it's all been glorified. And with this movie, nothing is. It's all just real and raw and, and messy. And I mean... I, as much as the next person and, and this character, she loves those types of movies, but, you know, gets frustrated that, you know, it's not really how it goes down, right? Well, so are award shows at all, like, getting ready for prom? You know, I do feel like I've had moments where I've definitely said out loud, I think this is, this is like, my prom. This is, like, this, you know, again, must be what it feels like to sort of have that getting ready moment. Um, I've had that multiple times, I think. I mean, I've had the pleasure of having my family around for all of it, which is awesome, my friends even. So I guess in some ways there are times that have made up for it. So when you graduated a year and a half ago, how did you celebrate? I had just signed a record deal, and I was in the Hamptons with uh, my label. Um, they got me this amazing cake that said, congratulations on your graduation, which is awesome. Uh, we celebrated on the beach, and it was amazing. Um, that's such a huge accomplishment. I don't think you realize until it's, like, been accomplished. Um, again, it's like those four years of your life that people are like, everything's going to be fine. Everything's going to be fine. You're like, no, it's not. It's four years of my life. And then it's over, and you're like, wow, like, that really feels like something. Did you have the gown? No, so, okay, so I, mm -hmm. the independent study program that I was, uh, I was doing had a 
graduation, but I was not in town, which I was actually like slightly okay with because I feel I just don't know if I could have done that. But like, I feel like, I mean, obviously my brother graduated. I went to his graduation and it was awesome. There were hundreds and hundreds of people and it was so cool. Everybody threw the cap. It was awesome. Um, but mine would have been like 12 people. I was like, no, I can't do that. That seems so awkward. Um, but yeah, no, I didn't. I didn't do that. So what kind of stories do you want to tell about being a young woman today? kind of stories do I want to tell I mean similar similar to the the story in this movie feeling like you know you could be a you can be a young woman you could be strong and you can be independent and confident and have self-love and self-reassurance and not be ashamed of any of that and you can also break down you're allowed to break down you're allowed to you know, make mistakes and, and know that that's okay and that's accepted and that's normal and that's life. That that would be what I would want to talk about. Yeah, I think that's one of the strongest things about The Edge of Seventeen is that you... It's weird. Watching it, I was aware of how used to I am of seeing movies where, like, a young teenage dude makes a ton of mistakes, but usually the girls in his life are just perfect and smiling right. and taking care of him. Right, totally. And this was getting to watch a girl... Who could be a mess? And you still loved her. Yeah, totally. Again, that's exactly what I think people sort of brush over or don't really spend enough time with is the fact that, you know, somebody had asked uh, our director, Kelly Freeman Craig, if at any point she envisioned a young male being a, being the, the lead of her movie. And she, for whatever reason, she's like, no, I, I never, I always saw it as it being, a, as it, this character being a young woman. And it's amazing to think that sort of her perspective from the get-go was of normality of, of a young girl, again, growing up, making mistakes, trying to answer all these questions that, that nobody's sort of answering for her. By the way, I just want you to describe Nadine's clothing style. So people oh my can God. picture it before they see the film. Um, it's a little quirky, a little different. It's interesting. Um, but, you know, one thing I loved really about sort of creating her her style was finding something that was still above it all being quirky and weird and different it's still being sort of aspirational in a way that girls can look at it and think like what about that isn't cool um you know the fact that I mean I myself Haley definitely make the conscious decision to like wear socks with ducks on them and make sure people can see them not often but I do it but yeah this character she goes for it I really truly believe that style fashion is a form of self-expression and she is she is who she is and what you see is what you get and the movie has so much to say about female friendships like watching it I got these almost traumatic flashbacks to fighting with my high school best friend Mm -hmm. it felt like we were almost married right no it definitely sort of focuses on on the importance and the impact that that has at that age especially um and it really does show that Having a, a best friend breakup can be just as bad, if not worse, as, as a romantic breakup. And, you know, going through every single second with that same person, you're right. It's like you're married. It's weird. Um, but it's not weird. It's it's your best friend. It's who you tell everything to. It's who you trust. It's who you go to for anything and everything. And in this movie, they have this incredible bond that is there even through the times that you think it might be lost. What is your advice for anybody who might be fighting with their best friend? Oh, man. You know, I truly believe that 
I mean, your best friend has your back. And, and just know, I mean, if you're best friends, you're best friends. And you'll make it through whatever it is you're going through. And, and hopefully it doesn't last very long. And hopefully it's something that was never really meant to be hurtful in the first place. Well, Haley, thank you so thank much you. for talking to us today. I cannot wait for people to see this film. I think they're going to love it. Thank you so much. I'm very excited. That was Haley Steinfeld, star of the new movie Edge of Seventeen. There is a very good chance it will be one of your favorite movies of the year. And Haley will definitely be one of your favorite actresses. Here is a safe bet. At one point in your life, you have probably owned a pair of Ray-Ban Wayfarers, those thick, black, plastic shades where the lenses are so dark you look mysterious and cool. Or maybe like me, you owned a pair of Wayfarers knockoffs because, like, let's be real, they're expensive and sunglasses get lost. If you look up sunglasses in the dictionary, Ray-Ban Wayfarers are the glasses you'll see. But in 1981, the Wayfarer was on the edge of extinction. Ray-Ban was about to stop making them. And then, in 1982, a little movie came out called Risky Business. And right there, on the poster, was a pair of Wayfarers posing on the nose of a nobody-new actor named Tom Cruise. Risky Business is a strange movie. We think of it as this comedy about a kid who dances in his underwear. But it's really a weird art house drama about this buttoned-up prude who becomes a pimp. No one thought it would do well. But Risky Business was a surprise hit, and both Tom Cruise and the Ray-Ban Wayfarers became legendary symbols of American cool. To tell us more about it, here is sunglasses historian, yes, sunglasses historian, Vanessa Brown, author of the fun book, Cool Shades. So, Vanessa, tell me how Ray-Bans originated. Ray-Ban was originally designed as a kind of actual sunglass as opposed to a particular style in the late 1930s. Immediately, it was associated with the kind of glamour of the emerging kind of Hollywood elite. Wearing Ray-Ban exuded a kind of coolness that was delicious. And this was really interesting because I think think they weren't quite sure at the time that sunglasses were going to become a sign of cool but somebody immediately talking about Ray-Ban said this about them um obviously they became initially you know with a kind of aviator style and then later with the plastic wayfarers which became iconic of celebrity throughout the 1940s and 50s um and really consolidated as the iconic form of sunglasses by by around the 1950s, I'd say. Interestingly, sunglasses didn't start out for the sun. They started out as being protection for things like um, cyclists, railway travel, and so on. So it is really interesting that the Ray-Ban Wayfarer style really grabbed this kind of attention. Now, that is interesting that they had sort of a medical background, but in the 1970s, the Ray-Bans became less popular. What kind of sunglasses were people wearing then? Oh, yes, in the 1970s, yes. Um, uh, sunglasses generally became a bit kind of rounder and crazier, more expressive, um, the kind of superfly style that you might associate with the black exploitation films of that era 
was very popular. Also, um, it was kind of moving just towards more expressive forms. There were developments in plastics and the technology of how that could be done that meant, I guess, you know, as the 60s segued into the 70s, the idea of fantasy became more important and Ray-Ban started to look, I guess, just something from a previous generation. And this got so bad that in 1981, Wayfarers were on the verge of extinction. I mean, I've read that they only sold 18,000 copies in 1981. Yeah. And they were about to cancel the whole model. But then in 1982, a movie came out called Risky Business. Yes. And as we know, it had significant impact on sales immediately. Apparently, you know, people were really taken with the image of Tom Cruise in that film and it did it did have an immediate impact on sales. However, um, I think I should add that it had been the case that, for example, the punk subculture was already using Wayfarers as a kind of, as something that mainstream fashion had totally rejected by then and they were, as part of their sort of raiding of 1950s and 60s subcultural styles, they managed to give it an edge that I don't think that I think was needed really I don't think Tom Cruise could have single-handedly um, resurrected the Wayfarer in precisely the way that he did. So he was almost co-opting that image because I'm picturing that cover of Risky Business a movie where he was playing a kid who opened a brothel in his own house and what you yeah. see is his eyes at the top of the poster but you really see those Ray-Bans and from what I understand they had a sales jump that was almost 20 times what they'd been selling before. I mean, I've seen different figures quoted, and I don't know the exact figure, but it is, it is a really immense amount. And I guess the other thing is that it coincided with the purchase of Ray-Ban by Luxottica, the kind of big sunglass consortium who owns a lot of the key brands. And they, they basically bailed them out and then started offering them up as product placement because I think they knew that they had iconic status and that they would ultimately, that frame would survive. But I think they knew that they were the iconic form even then. Well, what I'm curious about is that four years later, Tom Cruise does this again with Top Gun. I mean, is this a coincidence? Yeah. He brings back the aviator then. How is this happening? Yeah. No, I don't think it. I don't think it was a, a coincidence. I think it, you know, it's all part of the same thing. This kind of growth of the era of product placement, and by then, um, sunglasses. I mean, really, in the films, sunglasses had been a kind of key selling image um, already. You know, for quite some time, they'd been a really significant part of filmic images, and I guess, I guess it's fair to say that from maybe something like Breakfast at Tiffany's, images of a key protagonist wearing dark glasses had become a very sellable image. So I don't really think it's a surprise that you start to see uh, more examples of some Tom Cruise wearing them in the 80s. Um, they actually, if you look at the at film posters and film promotion, often the designers choose to show images of the protagonists wearing dark glasses, whether or not they feature that much in the film, actually, which yeah. is a really interesting point, I think. Yeah, there's some famous ones that people can be picturing right now in their heads as we talk about it. There's Kate Hudson in those round 60s sunglasses from Almost Famous, Woody Harrelson yep. in those tiny, weird, colorful shades for Natural Born Killers. You've got Keanu Reeves yep. in those crazy angular glasses in The Matrix. 
Yes, yes, of course. And and the thing that they do, what sunglasses do is that they have, well, they have so many different significations that can be really useful to filmmakers. And in risky business, so many of those are actually mobilized. The idea in the matrix um, that you see really strongly is this idea of sunglasses representing some kind of alternate reality. And in risky business, um, Tom Cruise is experimenting with, you know, his un- identity comes across as quite unstable, but he's experimenting with different ways to be. And sunglasses have a great way of signifying that, whilst at the same time suggesting the status of glamour, even actually of Hollywood itself and the whole idea of film and the pleasure of film and the idea of the way, you know, film offers us up so much visual pleasure where surfaces are perfected, um, there's a lot of reflective surfaces. So in a way, there's something very filmic about sunglasses before you even start, I think, which makes them instantly suggest that this character that is foregrounded has something, perhaps something to hide, something desirable, something's going to happen to them in terms of their identity. It's a really rich signifier that can just put across so many different ideas in one image, which obviously you have to do with uh, film promotion. Last question. What makes Tom Cruise's face so perfect for sunglasses? Um, There isn't a massive difference between the facial structure of Audrey Hepburn and Tom Cruise, which is quite interesting. Obviously, they epitomize a feminine and a masculine ideal, which is different. But he has quite a pointy face. Actually, his eyes are not that expressive, unlike Audrey Hepburn's. And to some extent, the sunglasses do stand in for that expression in close-ups and in promotional images. Vanessa, thank you so much. This has been a really, really interesting conversation. I bet you look really cool with whatever shade you're wearing over there in England. Thanks. Thanks. That's great. Thank you. That was sunglasses expert Vanessa Brown, author of the book Cool Shades, reminding us that fashion makes a statement. I am so glad she could join us for this week's episode of Skillset. And I am so glad you could join us too. I'm Amy Nicholson, and I accept dancing gifts of Tom Cruise on Twitter at TheAmyNicholson. Subscribe to Skillset on iTunes or your favorite pod catcher. And if you liked getting rebellious with us today, give us a rating and tune in again next week for a new batch of experts in our special salute to John Hughes, where we will hopefully have a new, new way to look at the movies. This episode of Skillset was produced by Michael Catano, Mukta Mohan, Kasia Mihailovic, and James T. Green for the MTV Podcast Network, with additional engineering by Little Everywhere. You can subscribe to this and all of our other shows on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever else you find your favorite podcasts.